You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. My name is Susanne Kalutza. I am the CEO at the House of Literature. And it is my great honor to welcome you to tonight's event with the legendary American author, Joyce Carol Woods. <laughs> Calling her legendary is no exaggeration. Ever since her literary debut in 1964, Oates has made her mark in the US and across the globe with novels such as We Were the Mulvaney's, The Gravedigger's Daughter, The Falls, Black Water, My Life as a Rat, and Night, Sleep, Death, the Stars. She has written extensively about boxing, an iconic novel about Marilyn Monroe, short stories, novellas, nonfiction, and a number of children's books. Her work is amazingly diverse in range, razor sharp in observation, and incredibly tender and generous in its portrayals of people. According to Oates herself, the very core of her writing is to be a witness, to tell the stories of those who have no one speaking for them. She doesn't shy away from burning issues such as misogyny and racism, violence and social injustices, and her two latest novels translated into Norwegian both show this to the letter. For several decades now, the publisher Pax has made Oates' novels available in Norwegian, beautifully rendered by translators Tone Formo, Hildeling, and Bente Klinge. The novel Babysitter came out in Norwegian earlier this year. Based on a string of unsolved child murders in Detroit in the 1970s, this dark thriller deals with racism, predatory sexual behavior, and corruptions issues sadly still relevant today. Detroit is also the main setting in Oates' National Book Award-winning novel, Them, from 1969, available now for the first time in Norwegian. In this novel, which is considered among Oates' major works, class, poverty, and the lack of opportunities this leads to are central themes set against the backdrop of the 1967 race riots in the city. While Oates certainly writes about dark events and issues, we would be remiss not to make note of her dark humor, her precise psychological portraits, and her beautiful descriptions of love, loss, and belonging. Or of the enormous impact Oates has made and continues to make through her teaching of creative writing. Yesterday, those present at the House of Literature heard a talk about the writer, art, and creativity. And now we are looking forward to hearing her talk more about a long life dedicated to writing, to the power of literature, and to the writer as a witness. To talk with Oates on stage, we are happy to have with us writer and journalist at Klassekampen, Karin Haugen. So now please help me welcome Karin Haugen and Joyce Carol Oates.
welcome. You can feel the outpouring of love here. <laughs> and um, it's such a pleasure to have you here. And I'm really happy that we uh, are able to sit here in these beautiful surroundings with these paintings around us. Um, I understood that you have been able to see the Munch yes. Museum and found that and the National Museum, yes. and that you have been very inspired by Munch these yes, days. Yes, very much. Beautiful, beautiful. Very uh, probing and meditative work. One can stand in front of the paintings for long minutes and just sort of stare at them, which I think is one. Uh, the criteria of art is that it's sort of mysterious and that it does something to you that can't talk, really explain. Yeah. Mm. Were there any special work that spoke to you more than others of his? Oh, um, well, I remember the kiss and Madonna, the dance of life, you know, the sick child, puberty, I mean, a whole succession. The, the day after, which was kind of startling image, uh, uh, many, many of them, mm. yes. Mm. yes. Uh, the vampire, yeah. yeah. So I'd like to transport us from these uh, lavish surroundings to a very different time and place, which is the Detroit that is the setting of your novel, Them. Uh, and uh, you have described them uh, wonderfully as a valentine to Detroit. Yes. Yeah. And you lived there for a number of years. Um, what kind of a city was it then, and uh, why did it become so significant for you? Well, I grew up on a small farm in upstate New York, and I went to a university at a fairly small, in a fairly small city, and then I was living in another sort of semi-rural area, and I'm from, literally from the countryside. So when I went to live in Detroit, as a young woman, young married woman and young instructor in university, it was literally the first time in my life I ever lived in a large city. And so that transition from uh, the countryside or small town to a large city was, I think, very profound and very revealing. Mm -hmm. So it, it would have been the case that any large city I went to live in in my early 20s would have had uh, kind of psychic effect upon me because it was a new environment. There's something about living in a large city with many, many people and kind of roadways that are interconnected and uh, regions and neighborhoods. It's very different, of course, from the psychology of living in a, in a small area where you literally know everybody. So I was kind of primed for that kind of psychic adventure. And then, of course, Detroit was one of the major cities of America at that time, a time of great um, economic boom and uh, a rising employment and an affluence. So it was sort of a throbbing American city. It was called Motor City, USA. This is decades ago. Then it became known later as Murder City, USA, which is not quite as wonderful as, as Motor City, but all part of that kind of vibrancy. And there was really a lot happening. Then I was in my early 20s. I was just starting to teach. 
I was just recently married, so life came at me very quickly. And I started writing about that, that life. And I think my novels just got larger and more expansive and more people, um, more was happening. They became more politically engaged and culturally uh, nuanced. So then I wrote Babysitter decades after this, what just came out last year, revisiting some, some of the years of living there and, and going back to that time, but with a, the with a vision of being in the 21st century and like a time traveler going back in time and sort of seeing things that are parallel. And it's kind of looking like a phenomenon like the Me Too movement, which is very contemporary and, and essentially didn't exist in the past, but with the consciousness uh, that has uh, come to us by way of Me Too, mm-hmm. sort of going back into the past and being more aware of how criminals, sexual predators and people like that we're not really just lone wolves who are marginal, but actually enabled in a kind of web of normal people who are helping them. I think that was something that we did not realize at the time. I would consider that a contemporary vision. So if you go back in time to write historical novel, you have a different perception of it, and you see things differently. It doesn't mean that you change the past but you suddenly see like a new perspective on the past. Mm-hmm. So that, that was exciting yeah. for me to do. A, a sort of widening of the scope. So um, the way you have described um, the importance of Detroit, uh, it's almost like a love affair because you, you write that, I close my eyes and once again, Detroit yes. is there. Yeah. <laughs> so the love is so palpable for that city. Um, but in in them, um, we'll get around to talking about the people in the novel, but um, there's a build-up in the novel to the riot of Detroit erupting. And um, uh, you have said that the riot of July 1967 was sort of this seismic shift in the soul of Detroit. So what was at stake in that riot, and, um, and what changed? Well, strictly speaking, we, sh- we should not call it a riot. It was a civil disturbance that was precipitated by police officers and the people living in the neighborhood, the, who happened to be black people, the kind of re- reacting against invading forces, so to speak. But, you know, when you call something a riot, it's sort of a journalistic way of suggesting that both sides are equally responsible. So that is a little misleading, I think, you know. Then there was even called like a race riot, as if black people just suddenly started rioting for no reason, you know. So I think there's something about um, the kind of paternalism or condescending air of journalism and sort of um, suggesting that both sides equally responsible. It was really the case which we learned decades later when you read about the situations of the black neighborhoods in these large urban areas are basically like an enclave with a white, a white majority of officials and authorities and particularly the police officers, you know, continually uh, 
um, you know, coercing them or harassing them or, or not allowing them really to be as free and, and have full citizenship. So th that was a, it was a reaction of people driven into a corner. You know, like if you're in a corner and you fight back and try to save yourself, you're not equal to your aggressor. They're, I mean, it's really sort of un unfair. And so I don't think that at the time people ever know what's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's suddenly some act of violence or something, a terrorism also is an example, it is presented as a kind of cataclysmic event and then it could be 10, 20 years before historians figure out why did that happen? But at the time, usually the, the why is, is lost because it's a spectacle. Uh, the same thing happened with, with 9-11, our terrorist attack in, in New York City, which seemed to be like uh, an act of nature, like lightning striking, except if you read about it and learn about it, uh, then it, it, wasn't, it wasn't for no reason. All these things are for some reason. Mm -hmm. So uh, my novel, Them, was written a long time ago. So I had at my disposal my first-hand experience. So much of what I write about is my first-hand, like my own sensory experience I put in the novel. Like being in the house with my husband, hearing the sirens and smelling the smoke, hearing gunfire hearing maybe a, a bomb go off or something. I mean, just hear existential feelings and fear, but not knowing what's going on, you know. So then years later, I did research into the experience that I lived, and then I found out many more things that had happened and led to it. And so I've written about, now, about the same thing later on, and that's kind of interesting too, because any period that we live through, we don't really know the context historically. We think we do, but we actually don't. Yeah. So uh, the, the title, Them, is, um, it's a very good title, and um, it's uh, the, the them of the title, the people in the story, um, it's a generational story, and we start out by um, with Loretta, and then we follow her children, Maureen and Jules. And how would you, you know, the title suggests uh, them versus us, uh, of course, so how would you describe the them of the novel? Well, looking at, looking at the novel from a little distance, them is, is small caps, it's not, it doesn't have a capital T. So it does suggest like the us versus them, like seeing people who are uh, impoverished or disenfranchised politically, and they're kind of like over there. And then at some point in the novel, one of the characters says to someone else, says, well, aren't we them ourselves? You know, like we, you know that make, make that identification which is what you're supposed to, I think, feel as a reader getting into the novel. First, the people are kind of at a distance, but then as you get to know the family, you, you should kind of identify with them and feel that you're part of them. 
Mm. And the, it's also about people who are middle class or, or upper middle class uh, looking at poor people like working, we have what we call working poor in America. People who are working, they can have two jobs but they're still poor because of economic uh, disparity. And so you can be a working person but also a poor person. And then somebody else looks at you and says, oh, you are, you know, like you're, you're not like us, you're not working. If you're poor, you're obviously not working hard enough, you know. So just the, looking at that kind of pejorative, judgmental vision, which is suggested by the title. And then there's a epigraph from The White Devil where what character says to another, because we are poor, shall we be vicious? You know, meaning, no, but we're considered vicious by people who are not poor. So it was very much a political novel. And the first novel that I addressed some of those issues, because as I said before, I never lived in a big city. Mm. So you're, um, you're an author that's not afraid to um, um, comment upon your own work, and you've written afterwards to several of your novels, and I love that because um, you get to see the tone in which a writer writes about their work. And in the afterward to them, you, you write that this is a novel um, where you see America through class war. And, um, you know, it's not that often you read someone say that I've written a novel about class war. Um, so, um, but you also point out that class war is taboo in the um, uh, supposedly apolitical literary quarters. So how has that been a tension for you? Well, I wouldn't say it was taboo. I think there, there's strong working class mm. novels and there's a tradition of writers like, well, Russell Banks is a good example of writing about working class people. Mm. Uh, Harry Cruz is a, 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 a kind of marginal sort of rogue a writer of fiction, definitely from a uh, very marginalized background, it's a sort of southern uh, um, working class or even below working class. You know. mm -hmm. I don't think that's a strong theme, but it's always been there. I mean, Mark Twain writes about people who are not middle class. The whole idea is that the middle class is kind of confining. And, but I think to speak in terms of class war sounds sort of like, it sounds like Marx, you know, that there's some division. But the uh, United States right now is so astonishingly divided that uh, uh, no one could have predicted it, I don't think. Uh, it's really very surprising. It's like some of the regression in women's rights, uh, women's reproductive rights, uh, regressing in some states in the United States, like back to the 1950s. Now, nobody expected that. I mean, like one day you're going to vote for Hillary Clinton, who we thought would be president of the United States, and then the next morning we're really back in another era of misogyny and outright racism, which is really astonishing. And so I think many, many Americans, especially liberals, have not gotten over that, you know, the morning after the, the election. When, um, and that you find out subsequently that, of course, 
Hillary Clinton did get more votes. She, she had millions and millions more votes. So, I mean, the majority vote did go to the, the liberal woman. But some, some of these things about uh, class warfare and the, the tension between classes and castes, what we call castes, uh, some of that seems really anachronistic. And so when it comes back, it's really stunning, really mm -hmm. surprising. Mm -hmm. So um, you've also stated that you feel a sense of absolute allegiance with them, uh, the them of your novel. And I think that um, I, I suspect that allegiance grows out of your childhood experience where you saw poverty and hardship um, so, what kind of a world did you grow up in? Well, I grew up in a very different world because, as I said, I grew up on a small farm. So when I came to a city, it was a different, uh, whole different consciousness. Almost literally seems like a vibration or a thrumming of excitement in a city that you don't have in a, you know, uh, out in the country where the rhythms of life are very different. So I'm, I don't think that my background is that relevant, except I did have um, a very loving family. My, my mother, my father, my grandmother uh, were really very supportive and in every way wonderful family. So I think that is the kind of emotional cocoon that we all need to, to live our lives. When I wrote about Norma Jean Baker, who becomes Marilyn Monroe, I was so struck by the fact that she had none of that. She didn't have a loving mother. She didn't have a mother who even held her. She didn't have any father. He never came forward. Even after she was famous and tried to call him, he wouldn't talk to her. So she didn't have all those, the kind of enclosure and warmth and embrace that we all need, even so, life is difficult. You know, even if your mother did love you, life is difficult. But if your mother didn't, that sort of makes you so, so vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It's like not having a skin, an outer skin. So I was just extremely lucky. Oh, people ask me about my, uh, my writing, and it may be that the early encouragement of my grandmother and my parents that early encouragement has just been deeply imprinted so that when I write, I feel that it's not anything hostile, it's not anything that's going to get, um, you know, criticism, but it will be received in the world in some way. I might have just sort of internalized that, and that comes from that background. So you were also the first in your family to take higher education. Yes, I was the first to graduate from high school. <laughs> mm -hmm. It sounds sort of primitive, but uh, my parents both had to drop out of school when they were only in eighth grade. So this is an, in, the, in the depression, what we call the Great Depression in America. It may, it may have been in Europe also. I, mean, I don't know so much the history of the depression, but uh, almost nobody Almost nobody had any money. Even wealthy people were committing suicide because they, you know, if you have $15 million in lost 
Five million people were, you know, committing suicide because they were so shocked at the change of fortune. So uh, I wasn't alive at that time, but I know a lot about that era. And because I come after that era, my parents had a certain uh, expectation of life and certain feelings about being frugal, not wasting money, saving money. Uh, these are qualities I inherited from them. Mm -hmm. And a work, work ethic, that pro happiness comes from meaningful work and connected with other people. So I kind of inherited that. Yeah. Yeah. And you also write beautifully about your love for higher learning and yes. your love for education and almost the romance of education yes. that yes. it was for you. Definitely. Oh, yes, romance of, ed of education, of books. Well, last night I heard myself saying that the book was so important because there were so few books in, in the schoolhouse and in my own house. Like, let's say, seven books, you know, if that's all you own, each one of them is prized. <laughs> and the trouble, I think, with the Internet and the world of electronic devices is that everything is fleeting, but nothing is actually tactile that you don't have a beautiful first edition of Joyce's Ulysses, like the physical book in itself, a book can be beautiful. But if it's something on a screen and you touch it and it's gone, you know, like you haven't invested any time in it, you haven't really turned the pages, you haven't made little notations, and you don't really internalize things, and I think it must be much easier to forget most things now. But when I was a student at a university, I had my books, and I would very lovingly underline and write in the margins, and I have all those books. So I have my Alice in Wonderland from when I was eight years old. It's actually a book, and I can open it, and some of the pages are torn, and in little marks, you know, and so, like, turning the pages is something very private and personal. Whereas if it had been on the computer, it would just be kind of gone by now. Yeah. So, I don't like to sound old-fashioned, you know, like, there, there are some things that are not necessarily negative, it's just like they're different. Mm -hmm. I, it's like more uh, the evolution of our consciousness and technology is, I think, morally neutral. Something that just happens. Nobody ever agreed to surveillance cameras all around in our culture. There was never a day when you signed a contract saying, I don't mind being on camera. None of us ever signed that contract. But in some cities where you're always on, you're always on a camera. Mm -hmm. But uh, we, nobody ever agreed to that. These things are like an evolution, and I think in a way neutral, just something that happens. Mm -hmm. So, um, besides your writing career, teaching has been important for you, and you have done it for years, and you're, you now teach at Princeton. And I was talking to an American friend, and he was um, telling me how cherished you are at Princeton and what an institution you are. Oh, really? And <laughs> he said, as an example of that, he said that at, at Princeton, they simply don't tow any cars because they don't know which one is Joyce's. Oh, that. <laughs> oh, that. So well, that's a Valentine right there. It's like the most, um, it's like the, not, not the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> 
pretty much the closest to the most. Uh, it's, that, and, that is so tr totally untrue. <laughs> I guess it's interesting to hear weirdly nonsensical things <laughs> about oneself. Um, but the more of things, I'm sure Mar Margaret Atwood has all sorts of things said about her too that are not true. But you know, you sort of wonder like how many things in life that we hear are totally nonsense. Yeah, like, okay. Who's, who, sa who said that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, yeah, I'll disclose my sources over dinner, yeah. <laughs> but well, it is the case at Berkeley that there are special parking places for Nobel Prize winners, because they have so many of them. <laughs> Uh, mostly in the sciences, uh, UC, UC Berkeley is one of the great research universities of the world, so there are literally these parking places for you know, if you have a Nobel Prize in, you know, chemical, uh, organic chemistry or something, you can park there. But Princeton, no, we don't, we don't have that, it's not that like that. Um, so I want to talk a bit more about your grandmother, because she was instrumental in your reading uh, life um, starting out, she took you to the library and she was very much a reading woman. Yes. So, um, and you write so beautifully about her influence on um, being a key figure in your life and also for your career. Can you tell us a bit? Well, I think like all of us, I took my parents utterly for granted and my family. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you, were, when you were a little child, you just think, oh, I must deserve this. Like, there isn't any sense that you get in later in life, you think, oh, I'm so lucky. And children only see their parents in terms of the relationship. You know, uh, you have to be a lot older, really, to realize that your parents were actually alive before you were born, <laughs> and that they had a complex... Uh, they had complex lives, and they didn't know they didn't know that you were coming, and you might you might just be a complete accident and a surprise. And so it was really decades later that I started actually thinking about my family and how how special they were, and my grandmother. Uh, of course, not that I didn't love them at the time, but I didn't have that view that I had later, because after my grandmother passed away when I was just in my 30s. Then it came to light uh, later when uh, a man was writing a book about me and he was uh, doing research into archives and so forth. It was discovered that my grandmother was, was Jewish, but she had never said she was Jewish. And her family, um, whom I did not know, uh, they were obviously, they obviously fled Maybe they fled pogroms in Europe to get away from anti-Semitism. So they came to America, but they didn't stay in the Jewish areas of Boston or New York City, which were very vibrant and very like the Lower East Side. They went way, way up in the wilds, Western New York. I don't actually know why they went there. They must have been the only Jewish people who went, who went there. I mean, nothing like, no synagogues, I mean, there were really no Jewish people. And then I think they just assimilated, and, and I think they said that they were Protestant. Because when my grandmother got married, it just said Protestant on her, 
her wedding certificate. So it's, it's more like they were nothing. They were American. And I think that's what it, one of the romances of America. You come from the old world, so-called. You know, you come to the new world, and then you just reinvent yourself. You can change your name and change your identity, and you don't have to be shackled by the past. So my grandmother was the daughter of people who did that, and she never talked about religion. Um, she thought that uh, all people had like a common religion that people were not really divided into religions. She much admired Abraham Lincoln. I remember she, had, she read a lot of biographies of Lincoln, and she thought that his, his views of religion and of God were how she felt, which I think is sort of non-denominational. Mm. And parts of her story um, found its way into or was the inspiration for the grave diggers. Oh, yes, yes, so, yes. So can you talk a bit about that novel and its relationship to your grandmother? Because it's not entirely her story, but it's inspired by... Yes, The Gravedigger's Daughter is a novel that I wrote after my grandmother passed away, um, evoking her early life and how her family, the same thing, where they, they uh, completely detached themselves from their history. And she's actually born in America. Her parents are born in rural, um, Germany. They're German Jews, and they... They fled, uh, this is way before the 1930s. I mean, they came before then. Um, I'm not sure exactly of the chronology of the grave digger's daughter, but in real life, the family came earlier. So they would have lost relatives in the Holocaust. Uh, they had probably lost connection with them, but uh, anyone who was left behind who was Jewish most, mostly perished. So my grandmother represents, um, turns out to be n not really that small a minority of people who don't really know what their identity is. So when I was doing some, uh, some readings and talks about the gravedigger's daughter, people did come up to talk to me and say that my, uh, my mother was the same. You know, we didn't know she was Jewish and she just never acknowledged it. I don't, know what, I don't know that one should talk about genetic inheritance or even that it's real. So it's sort of mystical to talk about you inherited from one side of your family this or... Um, I'm not really sure scientifically whether that's a good way to speak. When we speak poetically, we might say something like, I inherited from the Irish, you know, a love of music or a love of poetry. I inherited from my Jewish side a love of books a reverence for the written word, um, you know, the arts. Uh, so it's hard to talk and how to know how precise one is being. But definitely my grandmother, who both was and wasn't Jewish, she was Jewish literally, but she wasn't Jewish, you know, culturally. She was the one who gave me books. I don't think my parents ever gave me one book. She gave me books for every birthday and every Christmas. She gave me my toy typewriter and my manual typewriter, and then she gave me my electric typewriter. So that's like three typewriters from a woman who was in fact Jewish but not really known to be Jewish. So 
I think it's a debate whether one should even talk about these influences. Mm -hmm. But when I was in Israel, which is just once, you can, you can believe that I did talk about that. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe it's a coincidence, but it was my Jewish grandmother who gave me all my books and my typewriter, took me to the library. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, that's the sort of thing that you would say, and people would respond to it. And it might be true, but I don't really want to go on record as saying anything so literal. Yeah. So there are several other novels or short stories of yours that take um, real-life events as their inspiration without there being like a one-to-one -one relationship. But one of them is Blackwater, which was inspired by a real-life event where a U.S. senator crashed his car and um, a young woman drowned. And... Um, that is just one of many examples of the ideal that perhaps more than anything is um, represented in your writing, which is that the author should bear witness. So um, could you tell us a bit about how you view the act of writing as an act of witnessing? Well, obviously, I lived through the, Chap the time of the Chappaquiddick incident, which is what that uh, tragedy and scandal was called which was quite a long time ago, and then I, I didn't write about it until 20 years later. Mm. So rather than writing about something that's in the headlines, I think writers often wait, or it's just a gestation period. So I wanted to write about the phenomenon which I saw in America of the time of my writing, not the time of the incident, of uh, the peop a peop people enthralled by power in, in their leaders, which is misguided. Um, having faith in a political leader who is actually misguiding his constituents or he's dishonest. And why do people have faith in leaders who will betray them? Mm -hmm. So you could write about the phenomenon of Los Alamos, like there's a movie Oppenheimer that just came out a couple weeks ago which has examined some of that. Instead of writing about Chappaquiddick incident, I could also have written about the um, Trinity, you know, the atomic bomb experimentations and then the, the explosion of the atomic bomb and how people who lived in New Mexico, many of them indigenous people, but also people who worked with uh, Oppenheimer and others, you know, how they were betrayed in the sense that they, did, they died of radiation, a sickness or a cancer, you know, decades later. Um, how your, your, your leaders who say they have speeches and they sound very idealistic, like the senator in Blackwater, he's a liberal, a good, a good person to hear him talk. But then his behavior, how do you treat people subordinate to you? How do you treat workers and employees? How do you treat like a secretary? How do you treat somebody who doesn't have your power? That's the revelation of the character. And so in Blackwater, though the liberal senator is actually a good senator, and he, would be, he is a Democrat and a liberal, nonetheless in his behavior toward people, he is reprehensible and lacking conscience, which was true of that of Ted Kennedy. 
Hmm. I mean, if you research that Chappaquiddick incident, it is truly shocking. I mean, not to go over the past, and some of you might know that past, but here is a senator whom people revered, and he was going to be a nomination candidate for president. He would probably have been president of the United States. Hmm. He was sort of being groomed, and he was very attractive, and actually... In subsequent years, he was excellent. He was an excellent senator. He was, after this scandal. It becomes like a debate. Can a person be a good person after being a bad person? So that was a debate. It's an ethical debate, which never gets solved. And so in researching the phenomenon, I just learned really shocking things. And I talked before about enabling. So it wasn't just that man who, who allowed a girl to die and drown. He really allowed that to happen. He ran and he called his lawyer. He didn't call emergency. He left her mm-hmm. for hours. It was hours and hours and hours before anyone was notified. And when you read that, you just think, you just, lose, you just really feel sick because there are many things that are not known. And how that subsequently played out was that immediately lawyers protected the family and got the Mary Jo Kopechny's family and they got them and they got them to accept a settlement with a non-disclosure contract. The family never talked about it. So they were given, I'm guessing, millions of dollars for silence. And the family protected them. I used the word enabler, and at the time, nobody knew this was going on, but now when you do the research, you learn that a whole family, and maybe the the Democratic Party, a good party, they kind of enabled this person and allowed him to continue. He he was a senator, but I'm not saying anything negative about his career as a senator. He was actually a very good senator. So it's an it's ethical debate. Can, you, can a person who's committed something really evil and egregious, can that person sort of make a comeback and then for decades be a good person? So it's, a, it's an ethical debate. Mm-hmm. And yes, yeah. philosophical and ethical. It really, yes. and it's not that easy, to, it's not that easily solved. So um, you've been called, and I think this is high praise, you've been called uh, the most relentless chronicler of America and its nightmares since Poe. Um, And uh, one thing that you have done is to use the Gothic genre. Um, And you've done it in your own way. And you've written several books in that tradition. So what characteristics of the Gothic genre uh, speaks to you and how have you formed it in your own way? Well, I think Gothic is sort of a shorthand. It might be a little bit of a cliche because I have, I have novels that are called Gothics. They're really long novels. They're very researched historical novels, but they, they might have a vampire in them or something that's supernatural or that belongs to a nightmare, but they also have, have real history. So I've got a novel with Jack London's a character, Mark Twain is a character, Teddy Roosevelt's a character, and pretty much they're in, in a place that's, that's real, you know, and the history that's going on is real. Whereas Poe, you mentioned Poe, Poe has no history. 
there's no hint at all that he's even writing about America. Uh, the Pit and the Pendulum takes place, I think, in Spain during the Inquisition. Um, much, much of Poe's short stories could take place in a never-never land, like fairy tale land, but sort of like Europe in the 19th century. There's nothing in Edgar Allan Poe at all that indicates that he's living in Philadelphia or living in Baltimore. He was an editor of a magazine. He was a newspaper man. He had a salon. He had many lady friends. He was married. He, uh, does not, he doesn't have anything realistic. And my writing is very realistic. So the connection with Poe is pretty slight. Um, he's, he, never, he was never interested in that, and he never wrote a novel. It would have been really interesting to have a novel by Poe that was like an autobiographical real novel about his world, because he lived during the time of slavery, and did he personally feel guilt and anxiety about slavery, or was he maybe a pro-slaver? We, we don't really know. Mm -hmm. So there's a big difference. When I, when I write in that mode, it's more like I'm writing in a, in a dream-like world where if I introduce the vampire, for instance, it's more like a symbolic vampire. Could be a person who sucks the life out of other people. As the vampires are symbolic creatures, and they really referred originally to the ruling class, like Dracula was a, a count, Dracula. And he's literally up here on a mountain, you know, in Transylvania, like you go up to the castle of Dracula, and all down in the valley are the peasants. And the peasants are bled by the landowner. And that was the case in all of Europe, that people who owned the land had the power, and other people had to work for them. So they were peasants or serfs. And these are like my ancestors. So you were, a no, you were of a noble family and you owned land. And then the other people kind of dispossessed and they would have to rent from you or they worked for you. So when I write about supernatural creatures, they're sort of symbolic of a, this class structure and not monsters to be taken in, a, in like a comic book, literal way. Mm. So another quote I like about you, um, this is, uh, I'm sort of quoting all of this praise about you, but um, uh, there's one I like that says that if a future archaeologist was equipped only with your work, they could sort of piece together the whole of post-war America. <laughs> um, And uh, so you engage in so much, and you engage even in popular culture, and you, of course, did so with um, uh, the major work of yours, uh, Blonde, on Marilyn Monroe, or perhaps we should rather say Norma Jean Baker, as you pointed out. So, um, and that book is, of course, also about America itself. And, um, um, yeah, okay, I have... Uh, yeah, you can first tell us why you were drawn to writing about her. Well, I was in the library one day, and I was just looking through a book of history, uh, like 20th century, and it was really amazing. 
and I think of what a turn in my life because I might have done something else like gone for a bicycle ride. <laughs> so I was just turning the pages of this book and there was this picture of this girl and she was very sweet and her name was Norma Jean Baker, 16 years old. And I kind of looked at her and then it real, I realized this is actually Marilyn Monroe before she became Marilyn Monroe. She didn't have that name, of course. So Norma Jean Baker, she had brunette hair, brown hair. She was very pretty, but she was not glamorous at all. She didn't have the features almost of Marilyn Monroe. If you knew that was going to be Marilyn Monroe, you could sort of see, maybe, but not really. She didn't look that much like Marilyn Monroe. Later on, she would have a platinum blonde bleached hair, and she would have some surgery. Even Marilyn Monroe had facial surgery. Uh, she was gorgeous before, and she was more gorgeous after, so that's Hollywood for you. So if she hadn't had her surgery and her blonde hair, we would probably never, never have heard of her. But at the time, I didn't really know who that was. And I thought, well, she sort of reminded me of the era of my mother. I spoke of my mother being quite poor. Uh, she was of a, a, very, a very large family, very poor, so she was actually given away. And my, not to go into that family history, but it was not so different from Norma Jean Baker, who didn't have a father, whose mother was schizophrenic. Her mother kept giving her up to an orphanage, but she could not get adopted because she had a mother. So the mother would bring her back, and then the mother would give her up again. I think she was in uh, a dozen orphanages and foster homes. So in some ways, she was worse off than an orphan because an orphan would be adopted, and she was very cute. She would have been adopted to a real family, but then we wouldn't have Marilyn Monroe. She wouldn't have the impetus to get out there in the world. So that was her fate was to be unloved, and all the other children were getting adopted, and she would not get adopted. So her fate was to be connected to a woman who was her mother, but didn't mother and was not loving. So Norma Jean Baker's fate was to be un, unloved. And, but then she began to notice that if she behaved in a certain way and dressed in a certain way, she got from the world emulation and people looking at her, like men would look at her and start looking at her, and that gave her a feeling of excitement and identity, such as you, we might have gotten from our families, she had to get from the world. So attracting the attention of anonymous men began a way of her establishing her identity. So she would wear tight-fitting clothing, and she, became, she got the attention of a photographer. She was working in a factory, and she would wear these very tight clothes. She was only like 17 years old, and she was really, really young. She was already married, but already her husband had kind of left her. He joined the Coast Guard. He, he really left her, and she was all alone. She was 17, married, but she had to work in the factory. And she was working in a kind of factory that she was working with uh, chemicals. In a few years, she would probably have gotten lung cancer. So, again, her life was saved by the fact that she was wearing these tight clothes, and one day, a photographer saw her for stars and stripes. He took her picture, 
and she was on the front page of this newspaper that went out around all the, 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 uh, mili uh, the mil U.S. military. So one day, there's Norma Jean Baker on the front cover of Stars and Stripes. And then the next day, she got the attention of somebody else and somebody else. And that way, she was saved from lung cancer in, in, the, in the factory. I mean, these are the stories that make up our lives, and they are so astonishing. I think that's why people write novels, because look at that. And uh, Robert Mitchum, was, who was not then a famous actor, he was a co-worker of her husband at one time, and he, he would know her later on. They were in a movie together, you know. Mm -hmm. Eight, nine years later, Norma Jean Baker and Robert Mitchum are in a, in a movie together. This is the stuff of uh, a fairy tale. So I was just led to write about all these things by the wild improbabilities of life. And so all along, Norma Jean Baker had these uh, moments of, of good luck. It was like... It was like a fairy tale. She was like a beggar. She was like a, literally a beggar maid. She had nothing. And then she's like the beggar maid. She becomes like a princess. And then she attracts the attention of Joe DiMaggio, who was very, very famous at the time. And he says to somebody, I want to date her. Like she's a starlet. And so the next thing, they're introduced, and then their pictures are in the paper. The next thing, they get married, you know. And that's like the first of her celebrity husbands is because he saw her picture in the paper. I don't think he'd even seen a movie of hers. And she was a very good young actress. So I saw all of Marilyn Monroe's movies in chronological order, beginning with Don't Bother to Knock, or no, The Asphalt Jungle. Yeah, that Don't Bother to Knock, she is a co-star with Richard Widmar. That was her first... And if you see her in the early movies, they're not the gentlemen prefer blondes, Marilyn. They are, she's a real actress. Mm -hmm. and, don't and Don't Bother to Knock, she's playing, an, she's playing a girl. She's not glamorous. And she's not singing and dancing in high heels. She's an actress, and uh, a really good actress. Then uh, a couple years later, she's in Niagara, which is like the big breakthrough. And there are billboards all around the country of uh, Norma Jean Baker, and now she's just displayed uh, in a very tight-fitting dress and a, re a red dress and high heels. In a, she's in a motel in upstate New York near Niagara Falls, and she's dressed like literally nobody in the world in a motel in Niagara Falls ever looked like that. <laughs> you know, she just happens to come out of her motel room, and she's just like something on a stage in, in, in Broadway, you know, that's just so weird and bizarre and unreal, I mean, totally unreal. But this is her breakthrough, so she becomes, after that, completely famous and notorious. And that's sort of the end of her private life. She never has a private life again. Then she's in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which is typecaster as a dumb blonde. And she, um, she never gets beyond that, really, in, in, the, public, mm -hmm. in the public consciousness. Now, as, a, as an actor, she was always growing. She took classes. She was really a working class. She was a working class girl and always took classes. Mm -hmm. She's always like dance lessons. 
And I have to say that the other big stars of the era, like Ava Gardner or Elizabeth Taylor and others, they would be caught dead taking classes. <laughs> I mean, Ava Gardner just didn't disdain anything like that. She didn't really care. And here's Marilyn Monroe, who was taking a class in dancing, and it was in acting. She may take a class in poetry. She's sort of like the good, the good schoolgirl who's actually working and learning things, while these others are sort of like prima donnas. And I was attracted to that also. Yeah. So you said fairy tale, and there is absolutely a fairy tale quality over the story and her life, but there's also this nightmarish, claustrophobic feel in how it developed. And I saw one description um, of Blonde that said that um, the novel is the most ferocious fictional treatise ever written on the uninhabitable grotesqueness of femininity, which I, <laughs> I love. Because there's also, because you know, she got the attention of men, but there was also this aggressive male gaze. And when I was rereading the novel now, I was struck by how daring you are in giving voice to the male perception of her because it's very crass and brutal and demeaning and physical. And, um, you know, I sort of shy away from quoting it on stage. <laughs> so, um, yes, what was that aggressive male gaze on Marilyn? Well, the novel originally was 1,400 pages. So that's a, lo that's a long novel, you know. And I perceived it as an uh, opportunity to write an American epic. So I put a lot of other things in, like the cultural, the phenomenon of the time, politically and culturally, lots of things that are going on. So I had the opportunity, which you don't have in a regular short novel, to have other perspectives, like people looking, looking at her, you know. And I was going to have even more chapters of people whose lives were intersected with her and how meeting a famous blonde actress would change their lives, but it doesn't change her life. It's like she had this effect on other people, which is, which is actually literal. She did have that effect, but she couldn't make herself happy. It's like she could bring happiness and um, entertain other people, but she herself was always very uh, isolated and very lonely. But the subterranean story also, which you wouldn't know about if you were just watching her career, you wouldn't know about it. The subterranean story is that as an actor, she was a working, she was exploited by the studio. So she was like a worker. So let's say she's not in the, in the plane factory anymore, but now she's in the studio. So every day she has to come in and, and there's literally was a doctor on the set for her actors to uh, give them like an injection of what we would call amphetamine. I don't know what they were called at the time. Mm -hmm. So say you're feeling really tired and you're just not really looking so beautiful. Um, you, they, give them an, they gave her injections of am, uh, amphetamine. So then a lot of the, uh, you know, the brightness of, uh, I think Judy Garland was always given something, some drug. Was it cocaine? Whatever there was, you know, there would be actual doctors, I mean MDs, who did this. So the subterranean story 
of many actors and actresses is that they were getting addicted to drugs uh, without knowing it. Mm -hmm. And then they, they couldn't sleep at night, so they were given barbiturates. And so she became heavily addicted to drugs, not deliberately. You see how this happens if you're exploited. So I've talked about class warfare. People don't really know about this. So actors were under contract. She had signed like seven, uh, a contract for seven movies and she couldn't really get out of those contracts. So I explore that in the novel, uh, getting these injections. Then there's a time when you can't really wake up and like you, you actually can't wake up or you can't fall asleep. So you take more drugs and then, and then you die. You, know, you, you can't deal with it any longer. I think she, she ran out, I think she burned out. So they say that her eyes were very bloodshot uh, near the end of her life. She was 36 years old and she, she burned out. Or you could say that all the life was sucked out of her like, a, like by a vampire, you know, the, the, the studio bosses. Now I would say that this is the 20th century, we are in a different time. Very strong women like Madonna and Lady Gaga and, and um, Taylor Swift, they are not victims like Marilyn Monroe. Mm -hmm. That was another era. Today we have women professors and women presidents of countries. We have women who are presidents of universities, women who are doctors. So we are literally living in a different era where women are not exploited like this. I mean, of course, some women are, but other women are, are not. So the, the movie that was made of Blonde, but which was uh, a, very, a, a very serious movie. It was really very uh, well done movie, but the movie was only two hours and it could have been like, you know, 70 hours. And the movie focuses on her as a victim, hmm. which is not, not wrong. That is true, but the movie focused almost exclusively on her being the victim, whereas the novel has uh, other, other aspects of her personality, like mm -hmm. more ebullience and more uh, moments of adventure and her, her little uh, writing. She, did, she, she wrote poetry and things like that. Can it was, it's a, yeah. was a sort of a long story, but I think that looking at the, um, like before the Me Too movement, but looking with the consciousness of the Me Too movement, looking mm -hmm. at the past. So can I do one more male, male gaze question? Because uh, one of the people who wrote about Marilyn was the great American author Norman Mailer, and um, uh, he exercises his male gaze pretty freely in that book. <laughs> Um, like one place he writes, she looks fed on sexual candy. And uh, another place he sort of says that when she does gentlemen prefer blondes, she, will, she, she is at her most sexually perfect. She will never look so fucky again. Wow. Um, and I've always thought, yeah, I've always thought that book is so interesting. And um, I, I'm curious what you think of his portrayal of Marilyn and that? 
Well, Can Norman Mailer was basically writing about his, um, his perception of a, of a woman whom he didn't know. Yeah. Like he has no idea that she's an actress. He has no idea that she's a woman who's working as an actress and when she's playing Jennifer Prefer Blondes, she's working. And she had like, you know, two hours of makeup and, and a hair that's all, and she's sort of put into her, her costume, you know. She's sort of sewn into her dress and she's wearing high heels that you never wear except if, if you're in a movie or, or men are looking at you. I mean, he, he basically had no conception of a, of a human being. It was more like this image that affected him. So hmm. every day Norman was writing that book because he needed money to pay alimony and child support. <laughs> so... The story behind writing a book for Norman of a certain kind was that he needed money, so a publisher would come to him or he might go to a publisher, and it would be like a picture book, and he would write some really kind of gibberish. You know, he would just sort of write something about a, a picture of, of uh, Marilyn Monroe in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and he would like type out his, you know, his impressions which you could do if you were 11 years old. And, you know, he, he, didn't, he, didn't do any res he didn't do any research into a human being. And so uh, I, Norman was a friend of mine, and I know very well, it was like a, he would probably say, oh, I did that for money, you know, I don't I want to look at it anymore. Uh, but that's the other side of some writers. Now, not all writers, but some writers were and have been writing to make money. And they have books that they, they don't really think are that, you know, representative of their work. So you could have a whole column of books by Norman Mailer that are things he did kind of quickly. And then you have his other books that he spent years on, like, like mm -hmm. uh, Ancient Evenings. He really cared about those other things. Mm -hmm. Also, Norman Mailer was acutely jealous of Arthur Miller. <laughs> <laughs> and they were the same generation. And he would look at Arthur Miller and he would say these things, they're both Jewish writers, you know. And he was so, so envious of Arthur Miller. And he thought, like, why can't I be the husband of Marilyn Monroe? And if he had been the husband of Marilyn Monroe, her life would have been even worse than it was. <laughs> people like Joe DiMaggio and Arthur Miller and, and John F. Kennedy, the president, and Robert Kennedy, his brother, they would literally look at a, like an image of her and say, I want to date her. They would say mm -hmm. things like, I want to date her, like they didn't even know her. They looked at a picture and then they would actually meet a person, like at a party, they would meet her and kind of want to appropriate her. But in all fairness, she would look at them and see, oh, the president of the United States, uh, I want to date him, you know. It's like these people are in high school. You know, you want to date the football, the, the head of the football team. You want to date somebody who is very popular. But they don't necessarily know, they don't know or even care about one another. And so when it became obvious to the Kennedys, like Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy, that Marilyn Monroe was deeply, deeply physically and emotionally distraught. She was having a nervous breakdown. She was 
addicted, addicted to drugs. They, they didn't want any part of her. They, they kind of just, no more. She couldn't call them anymore. That's when she, uh, she, she, committed, she committed suicide, some people think, or I think it was accidental, around that time. So when people perceive one another as images, it's only like a near perfection. They didn't care about the real person. So if Norman Mailer had known that, that Marilyn Monroe um, had a ruptured appendix or had um, a miscarriage, say she had breast cancer or some real problem, he wouldn't, you know, wouldn't want to get involved with her. The test of love is, does a person care about you? If they're going to run away at the first sign that there's something wrong with you, then they don't love you at all. And that was the problem with uh, the perception of Marilyn Monroe by other people was if she wasn't this beautiful, then they didn't, they didn't want to deal with a neurotic person who would be crying or, or screaming at you or, you know, really needed a ther therapist and needed psychiatry. Mm -hmm. So it's um, well known that you portray women and young women and the conditions of being a woman very well and I agree with that but I think also you write very well on masculinity and one place you do that is in your book on boxing uh, which Norman Mailer approved of <laughs> um, uh, but you write you have this uh, all of these beautiful insights in that book and it, you have insights on race and class and uh, and on masculinity and you you write in that book that men are fascinated by boxing because it suggests that masculinity is measured solely in terms of other men and not in terms of other women i think that's so illuminating for a lot of things in society well, it is kind of interesting. I don't really know if it's universally true and, or if it's true in Scandinavia. It's maybe more true in America. We're uh, more of a frontier, like a rough frontier country of America where there was always the reality, not just a, not just a myth, but a reality of a frontier. Like you could go into a whole area that was nobody lived there except indigenous people who it might be like a desert area, you know. I don't know whether Europe has that kind of myth, the mythology of the, of the West, where you go to a part of the country before the law's there. Like the law, the law wasn't yet, let's say, in New Mexico. Or New Mexico didn't actually exist, it was a territory. Or you could go to a territory that would become Idaho or Wyoming. And if you could get out there, you know, there, wasn't, there was no law, there was no there was nothing. It was like this, a kind of a wilderness. And so we have these myth, the mythos of a very masculine man being a, a man in America, unfortunately a man who has a gun, who started off as like the deer, the deer slayer was one of the first images. The deer slayer is a man who's a hunter, he's got, the, he's got a big gun. So the deer slayer slays deer but to eat. He brings the deer back to his family. But that image of the man with the, the, the rifle, it got imprinted in the unconscious of America. Mm. So that men, some men living today in America think that they should have a gun. They think they have the right to have a gun because they're American. Um, other parts of the world don't have that mythos. Uh, Canada doesn't have that mythos. 
Uh, Canada did have a frontier, but they were also a commonwealth. They were uh, an English, like an English colony, whereas America threw off the colony. We had our revolution, a very bloody revolution in 1776, which is also celebrated in America by a whole lot of fireworks and things going off and people shooting guns now. They literally shoot guns up in the air and the bullets come down and hurt people. Uh, all across America on July 4th, in big cities, people are shooting off firecrackers, fireworks, little bombs, huge noises, and, and guns. It must com seem completely crazy in a sane country. Also, on like the 4th of July, it starts earlier, like two nights before, and it goes after. Um, there are some Americans in the audience who probably have memories where it starts and it almost doesn't stop. And dogs especially, there are dog owners in America who take their dogs for tranquilizers. They have to be tranquilized and put in a quiet place in the house. Otherwise, they have complete nervous breakdowns. The dogs go insane with all the, the fireworks. I mean, when you, when you hear America being described that way, you think, well, this is complete lun It's like lunatics are doing this. And we don't disagree. I mean, there are Americans in the audience, and we don't, we don't vote for that. We vote against that. But our votes just go into some abyss. Like, uh, I think 70% of Americans are against the gun culture. And maybe 75%, but we're sort of stuck in, in a quagmire of a minority, a minority, aggressive minority uh, party that has a stranglehold on votes. But we don't have to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so actually the, ba the bad news is that we have run out of time. Okay. And the, the good news is that there is so much to talk about, so you have to come back. Oh, <laughs> yes, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek. <laughs>